Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault, incest, domestic abuse, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Fourteen-year-old Brenda Judd and her best friend, 13-year-old Sandra Colley, skipped to the ticket counter with money in hand. When they finally stepped through the gates to the fairgrounds, it seemed like all their dreams had come true. The flashing lights and delicious smells were so intoxicating, they didn't know where to start. Giggling to themselves, the girls debated whether to eat first or go straight for the rides. In their excitement, they barely noticed the thin blonde woman walking towards them. With the tone of an old friend, the stranger asked them if they'd be interested in helping her plaster the cars in the parking lot with advertisements. She was willing to pay. Brenda and Sandra looked at each other, then back to the girl. She gave them a warm smile. It was almost 9 p.m. and the girls were anxious to get their night started, but neither could afford to lose out on some quick cash. The girls followed the stranger into the dark. They passed by dozens of empty spaces to an isolated corner of the lot, where the woman gestured toward an old van. She unlocked the back door and ushered the girls inside to grab the pamphlets. The moment they did as they were told, the door slammed shut. The two teens turned to the blonde woman and saw her charming smile was gone. Before they could say a word, they were ambushed by a man from the front seat. He held a gun to their face and raised a single finger to his curled lips. He watched them for a moment, like a wolf eyeing a wounded deer. In a calm, cold voice, he told the girls they now belong to him. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we're covering the brutal murders committed by husband and wife, Gerald and Charlene Gallego. We'll discuss Gerald's traumatic childhood and how his intense abuse of Charlene drove the couple to kidnap and prey on young girls all over California. Next week, we'll detail the couple's increasingly reckless pursuit of violence and the federal manhunt that finally brought their killing spree to an end. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
with a personalized plan and expert coaching. Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Gerald Armand Gallego was born with a devil on both shoulders. From as early as he could remember, he felt like his soul had been tainted by a supernatural evil. Whether it was fantasy, paranoia, or simply a child trying to cope with his cruel upbringing, young Gerald embraced the darkness around him. As the saying goes, if you can't beat them, join them. Growing up in a rundown neighborhood of Sacramento, California, Gerald's early life was filled with violence and fear. His mother, Lorraine, was cold and distant. Whenever she wasn't beating him herself, one of her countless boyfriends eagerly stepped in. His father was an outlaw who ran out on Lorraine long before Gerald was born. She didn't hear a thing from him until 10 years later, when she learned he was executed in Mississippi after killing two police officers. Neglected and abused, Gerald developed a grim outlook on life. He learned the hard way that no one was going to save him. If he wanted to survive, he'd have to make it on his own. And he saw no point in living unless he was at the top of the food chain. Though he never met his father, Gerald followed in his footsteps. In 1956, at just 10 years old, he was arrested for burglary and assault with a deadly weapon. He was trying to steal a TV from a neighbor, and when she caught him, he swiped at her with a knife. Sentenced to reform school, he bounced around the California juvenile system for a few months. No amount of rehabilitation seemed to have any effect. His behavior only worsened, and a couple of years after his first felony, Gerald sexually assaulted a six-year-old girl. Once again, he was shipped off to a reform school where he managed to convince the authorities that he was no longer a threat to society. Little did they know, Gerald was just getting started. Just a year after being released, he was involved in a high-speed car chase and a shootout with police. Barely 14 years old, Gerald already had a rap sheet that would make any career criminal jealous. Before I continue with his psychology, please note, 
I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In a study on pathways from child maltreatment to juvenile delinquency, researchers Anna Stewart, Susan Dennison, and Alyssa Watterson found that children who are subject to abuse in their early life are at a much higher risk for developing antisocial and delinquent behavior. They may suffer from poor impulse control, lack of foresight, and disregard for consequences. Without proper treatment, these tendencies can lead to devastating consequences. Talented as he was at getting into trouble, Gerald got even better at slithering out of it. Whether it was a judge, psychiatrist, or parole officer, he could sweet-talk his way out of anything. As an adult, he perfected his ability to manipulate others. He developed into a handsome, hulking alpha male who extorted and disposed of people like used tissues. Charming and suave, he had a particular knack for seducing and exploiting women. He could wine and dine like a true gentleman and then strike as soon as his targets let down their guard. Using violence and mental abuse, Gerald established absolute control over his victims. Unsatisfied with traditional romance, he became obsessed with dominating women. According to one of his exes, Gerald was a perverted psychosexual maniac, solely interested in his own gratification. It was a mild description for the monster he truly was. No one was safe from his abuse, not even his own family. When he was 18, Gerald had a daughter named Mary Ellen. Uninterested in fatherhood, he gave custody over to his mother, Lorraine. Aside from the occasional visit, he had little interaction with the child until she turned six, when Gerald started to sexually molest her. The abuse lasted for years. By the time he turned 30 in 1976, Gerald had emotionally and financially ruined five women he'd conned into marriage, as well as countless numbers of girlfriends and mistresses. He devoured their money, bodies, and self-worth, all in a relentless pursuit of power. By all accounts, Gerald did anything he wanted, and yet he remained unsatisfied. After a while, it became a routine. It was all too easy. Nothing thrilled him anymore. Just when he thought he had nothing left to conquer, in the fall of 1977, Gerald was introduced to a beautiful 20-year-old rebel named Charlene Williams. Charlene was born in Stockton, California to an all-American family. Showered with love from a young age, her childhood was the polar opposite of Gerald's. She was raised to be a well-educated, exceptional violinist with all the potential in the world. But underneath the polished surface, she was desperate to break the rules. In high school, she developed a recreational drug habit that evolved into a severe problem. She grew into a hedonistic, sexually fluid young woman plagued by anger and feelings of inadequacy. Two failed marriages in her late teens wreaked havoc on her self-esteem. When she met Gerald Gallego on a blind date set up by a mutual friend, she was in an especially vulnerable state. 
She was exactly the kind of target Gerald was looking for. That night, he sat in the back of the moody dive bar, waiting for his mystery woman to arrive. He hated being set up with strangers, but his friend had promised Charlene was worth the effort. As he made quick work of his beer, he spotted a young golden-haired beauty walk through the door. She didn't look nearly old enough to be here, but Gerald didn't complain. There was something about her he couldn't ignore. She looked prim and proper, but he could tell she had a wild side. He had an eye for that sort of thing. Before he knew it, she was introducing herself. Her voice was like honey. Gerald couldn't believe she was the woman he'd been waiting for. He stood up to greet her and offered to buy her a drink. Charlene smiled and nodded as Gerald worked his magic. It didn't take long for Charlene to fall head over heels. Gerald was strong, decisive, and adventurous. His confidence was intoxicating. Finally, she'd found a loving man who could keep up with her spontaneous lifestyle. The following week, she moved in with her brand new soulmate. Everything had gone exactly as Gerald hoped. Within days, the honeymoon phase was over. Through his tried and tested methods of abuse, Gerald took advantage of Charlene's fragile self-worth. She became his housekeeper, butler, and at night, his sex object. He found any excuse he could to physically and verbally abuse her, but like all expert manipulators, he also knew when to turn on the charm. Sporadic gestures of love were sprinkled in the mist of violence and Charlene grew to depend on them. These rare moments of affection became her only relief. Her life became a never-ending quest to keep Gerald happy. Over the next several months, she fell entirely under his control. Though she did her best to satisfy his needs, their sex life quickly started to fizzle. Gerald was insatiable, and the more Charlene failed to satisfy him, the more miserable she felt. She eventually broke down and begged him to tell her what he wanted. It was the moment he'd been waiting for. Without hesitation, he suggested they have a threesome. Charlene agreed, and Gerald set out to find another partner. It's unclear when, but at some point before that evening, he'd met a 16-year-old runaway who caught his eye. As he described the girl to Charlene, she grew excited, apparently unconcerned about committing statutory rape. But when Gerald brought the teenager home, Charlene quickly realized her fantasy wouldn't go as she expected. Apparently, her boyfriend's idea of a threesome meant both of the girls were only allowed to focus on him. The night wasn't about Charlene at all, and Gerald never missed an opportunity to remind her. When he went to work the following morning, Charlene was left alone with the 16-year-old runaway. She coerced the girl into staying home with her that day. For the next several hours, the two of them had sex. Charlene was so caught up in the passion that she didn't notice when Gerald slammed the front door. 
he flew into a rage like Charlene had never seen. She groveled at his feet, but Gerald shoved her aside and grabbed the 16-year-old girl by the hair. In one furious motion, he heaved her through the window. Miraculously, she seemed relatively unharmed and fled for safety. Charlene wasn't so lucky. She begged for forgiveness as Gerald beat her mercilessly. The sight of the women enjoying themselves without him shattered Gerald's fragile masculinity. He was so distraught that for an entire month, he was unable to perform sexually. Unsurprisingly, he took his frustrations out on his girlfriend. Desperate to fix the problem, more for her own safety than anything else, Charlene came up with a solution at the cost of her humanity. Knowing Gerald still had a fixation on his 14-year-old daughter, she invited Mary Ellen to their apartment as a surprise for his 32nd birthday in 1978. Gerald forced her into bed and overcame his sexual dysfunction. Charlene's disgusting plan had worked even better than she'd hoped. She sold her soul for Gerald's happiness, but she didn't care as long as he got what he wanted. No matter the cost, she'd make sure he was happy for the rest of her life. After Mary Ellen went home, Charlene snuggled up next to her monster and came up with another sadistic proposition. If teenage girls were what Gerald needed, then that's what they would get. Whenever the mood struck them, they could hunt, kidnap, and attack whoever caught Gerald's eye. The idea made his cold heart race. He was only afraid their victims would eventually turn them into the authorities. He had no intention of ever going back to prison. Abandoning any shred of morality she had left, Charlene suggested they simply kill their victims once they were finished. Gerald grinned. Finally, he'd found a partner who could match his evil. When we return, Gerald and Charlene put their plan into action. The internet, what would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loie, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify.
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In July 1978, 32-year-old Gerald Gallego and 21-year-old Charlene Williams agreed to commit a string of horrific murders together. To fulfill their sadistic desire for sexual dominance, the couple intended to kidnap, rape, and kill teenage girls in the Sacramento area. Gerald owned a collection of guns he knew would be necessary tools in their kidnappings. Though he'd been shooting his entire life, Charlene was a novice. He needed his partner to be prepared in case things got messy. Over the course of a week, he had Charlene fire at targets for hours on end, fine-tuning her skills until she was a crack shot. Next, they worked on her look. As the bait for their operation, Charlene would dress herself up like an approachable teenager and lure unsuspecting victims back to their van. Though she was in her early 20s, With the right wardrobe and hairstyle, Charlene easily looked like she was in high school. She and Gerald rehearsed various cons and talking points for her to use in conversation, leaving nothing to chance. Charlene eagerly absorbed every one of Gerald's lessons. She couldn't have been happier to be a spy and never once complained about the rigorous drills. They felt like a team, and during that week of training, she felt closer to her lover than ever before. When the preparations were complete, Charlene could barely contain her anticipation. She wanted to get started right away, but Gerald dismissed her enthusiasm. They would start when he said so. Until then, she would have to be patient. It took six weeks of obedient waiting before Gerald abruptly woke Charlene on the morning of September 12, 1978. It was time to kill. She had no idea why he was suddenly ready to go through with the plan, but knew better than to question his judgment. That afternoon, the couple drove their refurbished van to stake out a local shopping mall. Their windows were tinted and the back was outfitted to look like a groovy, inviting place to hang out. The perfect trap for naive teens. As they walked the promenade, Gerald and Charlene felt like they were in a candy store with pockets full of cash. Their eyes jumped from one promising target to the next. With each passing mark, Charlene glanced longingly at Gerald, expecting his approval but he kept silent as he watched dozens of potential victims go by. They were all tempting, but he was waiting for perfection. Then, suddenly he froze. There they were, two young girls seemingly no different from the hundreds of others. But for some mystical reason, Charlene didn't dare question. Gerald knew they were the ones. He ordered her forward and turned back to the van as she walked cautiously towards the girls. 
To her surprise, they initiated the conversation first. Charlene smiled. Her disguise was foolproof. She eased into character, assuming the role of a rebellious teen. Her targets were 17-year-old Rhonda Scheffler and 16-year-old Kippy Vaught. Within minutes, Charlene persuaded them back to her car with the promise of cocaine. She couldn't believe how effortless the con had been. Somehow, Gerald had known these two girls in particular would be easily convinced. However he did it, Charlene was in awe. The three girls approached the back of the waiting van. Charlene double-checked to make sure no one was watching, then invited them inside. As they marveled at the spacious interior, she locked the door. At the sound, Gerald whipped back the curtain from the driver's seat and brandished his gun. Rather than terror, the girl's initial reaction was sadness. They assumed Gerald was an undercover cop about to bust them. If only they had been so lucky. With a twisted smirk on his lips, Gerald told them he wasn't a policeman and tossed a roll of duct tape toward Charlene. When he gave her the order to tie them up, reality sunk in for the young girls. Basking in their fear, Gerald shifted the van into gear and headed for the highway. He took them high into the mountains, far away from any witnesses. At around 5 p.m., they came to a stop along a lonely dirt road. Gerald lurched into the back of the van and told the girls he was going to rape them. If they cooperated, he claimed, he would set them free. The girls nodded in terror, holding on to hope that they might make it out alive. They had no idea their fate had already been decided. Five hours later, Gerald and Charlene exited the van in a state of sadistic euphoria. Under the glow of starlight, they stared into the nearly full moon like werewolves after a hunt. Gerald stood as Charlene fell into his arms. She felt like a warm blanket in the chill of night, and he gripped her tightly. They had never shared a better moment. All his life, Gerald had searched for the feeling of total power. He wanted to make others feel worthless, the way he'd often felt as a child. Now that he'd finally experienced it, he refused to go back. Spreading terror was his only goal now. He wouldn't stop until he was dead. He breathed in the cold air, the thought of death pulling him back to reality. He craned his neck towards the van. They still had a job to finish. The fun wasn't over yet. He swung open the van doors with an excited jolt. His victims stared at him in horror, expecting the worst. As their eyes welled up with tears, Gerald got exactly what he wanted. This kind of sadism is common among sexual predators. In a 2017 article on their behavior, clinical psychologist Dr. Stanton Samenow summarized the typical motivations that drive these offenders. In addition to power and control, 
Dr. Samenow described how perpetrators of sexual violence have a unique ability to completely ignore their conscience in order to carry out their crimes. Though they fully understand their actions are wrong, in the moment, they feel invincible. As a result, they can disregard any harm they do to their victims. Gerald had no remorse for what he did. On the drive back to Sacramento, he sat in the back of the van and assured the girls they would be freed. Charlene buried her laughter, practically giddy at the lie. Eventually, Gerald directed her to pull off the highway and follow a dirt road along a long stretch of farmland. He told the girls they would be loosely tied up in an old barn house. Once he and Charlene had escaped, they could wriggle free and run for help. By tomorrow, the attack would be nothing more than a memory. They finally stopped along an open field with no barn in sight. The girls got out of the van and watched the dark grass sway in the frigid wind. It was the last thing they saw before Gerald pummeled them with a jack handle. Once they hit the ground, he unloaded seven bullets into their bodies and left them for dead. On the drive home, Gerald told Charlene how proud he was of her. She melted from the approval. For her, it was the perfect day. A week after the murders, however, the couple's morbid thrill was replaced with paranoia. Though they had done it all together, Gerald was suddenly worried Charlene would rat him out. As far as he could tell, he had two options to prevent her from talking. First, he could kill her too and remove the problem entirely. But he worried that if he did that, her parents would investigate and eventually catch him. It wasn't worth the hassle. Instead, he chose option number two, marriage. For some reason, Gerald mistakenly believed that spouses were unable to testify against one another in court. Gerald proposed or more accurately informed Charlene that she would be his bride. She was ecstatic. On September 30th, 1978, less than three weeks after their double rape and murder, the couple eloped to Reno, Nevada. For the next few months, the two of them laid low. Gerald knew they had to wait for the heat to die down before striking again. In the meantime, Charlene's parents insisted he get a proper career to support their daughter. Using their connections, they landed him a job as a truck driver for a supermarket chain. The work was tough and honest, two things Gerald despised. Though he was making more money than he ever had illegally, the responsibility was grating. He felt trapped. More than anything, Gerald Gallego hated being told what to do. He became miserable and angry at home again, often taking his bitterness out on Charlene when he had the energy. Making matters worse, his sexual dysfunction returned after the murders. Naturally, he blamed Charlene, but they both knew the real reason he couldn't perform. Deep down, they felt a familiar urge clawing its way to the surface. The time was coming. They couldn't wait any longer. 
Gerald and Charlene needed carnal release. At 3.30 in the morning on June 24, 1979, Gerald finally reached his limit. He smacked Charlene awake and told her that he was ready to claim their next victims. She almost cried with excitement, adrenaline pounding through her veins. They had a long day ahead, so Gerald told her to go back to sleep. Once the sun rose, they were going back to Reno. The hunt was on. When we return, Gerald and Charlene kill again and again. Now, back to the story. On June 24, 1979, Gerald and Charlene Gallego set out to find their next victims. It had been nine months since their first two murders, and the couple was desperate to get their sadistic fix. They packed up their van and headed for Reno, Nevada at first light. It was a beautiful afternoon by the time they arrived at the Nevada State Fair. The couple perched on a hill overlooking the fairgrounds and watched as the mobs of delighted guests poured in. Gerald scanned the crowd for potential marks while Charlene eagerly awaited her orders. The two of them spent hours trying and failing to snare a victim. Nobody Gerald was interested in seemed willing to follow Charlene back to the van. Finally, at nearly 8 p.m., Gerald spotted the perfect targets with bloodthirsty eyes. He warned Charlene not to let him down again and sent her to fetch their prize. 14-year-old Brenda Judd and 13-year-old Sandra Colley were chatting by the front gate of the fairground when Charlene skipped up next to them. She offered them $20 to help her hand out some flyers, and the girls happily followed her to the van. Brenda and Sandra obediently climbed into the back, expecting to be handed a stack of leaflets and some money. When Gerald revealed himself from the front seat, they realized they'd made a terrible mistake. As they raced along the Nevada highway, Gerald ogled his captives. He was supposed to wait until they were at an isolated location, but couldn't fight his urges any longer. While Charlene navigated the dark roads, he attacked the two girls without her. Charlene heard a commotion in the back and glanced in the rearview mirror. When she saw Gerald was halfway undressed, she angrily asked him what he was doing. He brushed her off and removed his shirt. Charlene was furious. They were supposed to be a team. She had done all the work getting the girls into the car and now he wanted to do things without her. It wasn't fair. In a blinding fit of rage, she veered off the highway and slammed on the brakes. Gerald and their petrified victims tumbled around the back. Charlene pounced out of the van with her pistol in hand. She screamed into the night with savage fury, a deadly combination of jealousy, frustration, and anger burst forth from her like a tidal wave. She tightened her grip on the gun as her pathetic excuse for her husband stumbled out of the van. She'd done everything for him, and now he wanted to wreck it all. He didn't care about how she felt. He never did. Deep down, she'd always known that. 
Her breath quickened as she cursed his name in the lonely desert air. If this was how he wanted to do things, then it was fine with her. She was just about to unload on her husband to tell him everything she'd been keeping bottled up inside when Gerald drew his gun too. Out of instinct, Charlene fired when she saw the glint of metal in his hand. Gerald was only a fraction of a second behind her. Her shot hit him in the arm while his flew within an inch of her head. Gerald stumbled backwards and fell to the ground. Seeing her husband collapse was all it took to jolt Charlene back into submission. Horrified at what she'd done, she rushed over to check the damage. Tears rolled down her face. She expected to see a pool of blood or loose guts falling from his body. To her relief, the bullet merely grazed him. He was more startled than anything. Charlene stuttered through a stream of apologies, ashamed at her behavior. Her utter devotion to Gerald showed just how much control he had over her emotions. In a 2013 article examining violent relationships, clinical psychologist Dr. Craig Malkin explored the complicated reasons why victims sometimes stay with abusive partners. Along with fear, shame, and guilt, Dr. Malkin explained that these individuals are often forced to become completely dependent on their abusers. When their self-worth is so thoroughly damaged, they can be unable to imagine life on their own. This causes them to cling to their abuser's positive traits and make excuses for the destructive ones. Charlene's anger towards her husband was quickly snuffed out by remorse. As she lay over his body, she prepared herself for Gerald's wrath. But perhaps because he realized he'd pushed her too far, he never retaliated. Instead, he acted like nothing had happened and ordered Charlene to check on the prisoners. She rushed over to the open van, expecting their captives to already be gone. The gunfight would have been the perfect opportunity to run, but the girls were too terrified to try. Charlene flashed them a twisted smile. It was long after midnight when Gerald finished burying the bodies. He covered their shallow grave with a large rock, and the couple shared another moment under the stars. As coyotes howled in the distance, they left their victims behind in the cold Nevada sand. The two of them laid low for another several months after that night, but the thrill of the murders wore off almost immediately. In no time, their lives returned to boring normalcy, and the couple was left wondering what went wrong. Demoralized, Gerald became increasingly demanding. Month after month, he struggled through a never-ending stretch of self-doubt and sexual inadequacy, both husband and wife knew there was only one solution, but it took nearly a year for them to admit it. They craved the danger, the power. Without it, they were nothing. On April 24, 1980, 10 months after their last rampage, the Gallegos drove 20 miles northeast to the sprawling Sunrise Mall in Citrus Heights, California. They were laser-focused, 
the excitement of their previous stakeouts replaced by a dreadful sense of urgency. They needed victims, and they needed them soon. Gerald eyed a number of potential victims from the crowd, but none gave him the maniacal feeling he yearned for. Until he spotted 17-year-old Stacy Ann Redekin and Karen Chipman Twiggs standing alone in the brilliant sunshine. His sixth sense for vulnerable girls rang like a stadium horn. The thrill of the chase, however, never came. It took almost no effort to coax the girls to the parking lot. They were on their way to Hollywood to try their luck in the adult film industry. And within minutes, Charlene had persuaded them to follow her. In exchange for drugs and a good time, she told them she wanted to surprise her husband with an orgy. The girls were thrilled at the proposition and eagerly hopped inside the blacked out van. When Gerald jumped out with a gun, he and Charlene expected the familiar rush of total power and control, but the girls weren't afraid at all. They assumed it was all a steamy form of role play and giggled with excitement. There was no terror or apprehension. It wasn't what the Galegos were after at all. Gerald was irate, but continued with the plan anyway. He ordered Charlene to tie them up and jumped in the front seat, cursing under his breath. They drove over 300 miles from the Sacramento suburb all the way to the hills of Nevada. It was the first time they had crossed state lines after a kidnapping. Though Charlene had a limited understanding of the law, she knew this qualified as a federal offense. The disappointing start, along with the unexpected risk, made her anxious. They finally arrived at a campground high in the mountains. Somehow, after hours of driving, the girls were still willing to participate in exchange for the cocaine they were promised. Though it was far from what they'd intended, Gerald and Charlene went through the sickening motions. It didn't give them what they were after. There was no danger, no power. The entire night was wasted. Even after Gerald cracked both of their skulls with a hammer, he felt empty inside. As he shoveled loose dirt over their graves, he wondered if it was even possible to recapture the thrill of their first murders. Dejected and in need of some relaxation, he suggested they head to Lake Tahoe for a night on the town. It was an unusually romantic suggestion that made Charlene's heart flutter. The wonderful evening of food and drink, followed by a passionate night in the hotel room, became one of her fondest memories. A few weeks later, Charlene found out she was pregnant. When she shared the news with Gerald, he was thrilled. Maybe this is what they were missing all along, a strong, powerful heir to carry on their family name, a prodigal son who would carry the Gallego bloodline for years to come, their own Prince of Darkness, groomed to take everything he wanted from the world. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. 
We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Gerald and Charlene Gallego's story. We'll chronicle the second half of the couple's killing spree and the betrayal that finally brought their reign of terror to an end. For more information on Gerald and Charlene Gallego, among the many sources we used, we found A Venom in the Blood by Eric Van Hoffman extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Grayson Niles, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hobbs.